Welcome back to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast. My name is Pastor Jeremy. And I'm Pastor George. And we are coming on back to you on a Tuesday. It was a holiday weekend. We warned you a few podcasts ago that there would be some of these uh, weeks coming up here during the summer where Mondays were just hard to get into the studio. Um, so we've continued our conversation here on a Tuesday, and uh, we're talking about um, the, the church right now. We're talking about the, the history of the American Protestant church. Um, and we've been th- going through this arc. We started talking about it way back with Christopher Columbus um, in episode like three, I believe. And now we're here um, and uh, we've made it all the way through the, uh, the 1980s really is where we were leaving off in our last episode where a lot of things start to happen. So we, move, we, we start with this American Protestant movement, which is a very unique thing in church history that you have a um, a brand new country um, uh, being founded um, largely out of its experience with a uh, kind of a, an emerging faith. Um, so both of those things develop around the same time together in the American experiment and pro- the Protestant church. Um, and they kind of grow up together in this, um, this great lab for both um, politics and religion. And out of that movement and out of some of these new denominations that we've talked about come out of um, the melting pot of nations that come into the United States, um, you have the Protestant movement, which grows and flourishes. And over time, out of that, you then get something that we've called the evangelical movement. Um, And the evangelical movement, we've said, uh, is rooted largely in uh, the fundamentals of the faith that came out of Chicago. What year was this again? Um, Oh, like the... Are you saying the uh, in 1923 the uh, the fundamentals of the faith by great J. Gresham Machen? Right. So that's the that's the one big step in the evangelical movement, and then after that you have this doctrine of inerrancy that gets refined and published out of Chicago. That was the right, Chicago, the Chicago thing. statement on inerrancy, 1980. I think it was 1986, somewhere about there. Sure. So that is kind of our arc that really begins to define evangelicalism as a movement within the Protestant Church, um, and you have. Now, there are evangelicals is broader than just one denomination, but it is a mindset among denominations, and you have certain denominations that kind of fill in that hole more than others. Right. 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 You know, you could technically call, like, even some Catholics an evangelical Catholic, but that's rare. Um, but you, when you think of the evangelical church, you're tending to talk about um, a lot of non-denominational churches. Um, we've talked about where those come from. That's a few episodes ago. and. Um, some community churches like ours, you have a lot of um, Baptist churches that uh, that would fall into that evangelical line, um, and, uh, and there's um, there's others. So there's too. a very interesting uh, website that you might consider going Ooh, resources to, and fun. that's uh, it's called the Pew Research mm-hmm. Study on Religion. Um, I think it's pew pewforum dot com, and uh, P E W has nothing to do with church furniture. Uh, has everything to do with a uh, or a cartoon skunk? It, exactly, it is uh, has everything to do with a um, a very conservative uh, family in the 1950s. Uh, Pew was a big supporter of uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, his his research company today is uh, well Pew Annenberg. Both of those people were very conservative. Uh, most of their work today is being done for liberal causes, which is pretty crazy on a political spectrum. But uh, the Pew Research Center does an annual uh, religion study. And if you go into that Pew Research website, they actually break out how many people in the United States consider themselves evangelical, how many people consider themselves uh, mainline Protestant, uh, all the way down to, uh, you know, the end of the list is is not connected or atheist. And um, right now, for example, 25% of the population in the United States calls themselves evangelical Christians. And if you hit the little carrot next to that on that website, it will define uh, many of the church denominations that we would call evangelical. There you go. Okay, so, so if you're curious about playing around with that and learning a little bit more... Yeah, actually, um, very interesting to site to go to. Yeah. Um, and, and just, it gives you a good insight. Um, I know, for example, one of the things that has made um, a lot of headlines in the last two or three years 
is that uh, only 75% of the population in the United States considers themselves Christian mm. now. Mm -hmm. And uh, they make a big deal in that conversation about how, uh, you know, there's the number of people who consider themselves um, not religious is about 20, 25% of the population, which is a pretty startling number. 20%, I think, is what it is. But when you dig into that number, what you find is that only about 8% of the population could consider themselves atheist or agnostic, uh, which is a number that has not changed um, in almost 100 years. Hmm. Uh, but what you do have is you have a lot of, uh, a lot of people who have become disenchanted with denominationalism. They've become disenchanted with the message of the church. And they classify themselves as none. They, uh, they don't identify anything spiritual in their lives. Although in saying that they're none, they have not gone to the place where they've actually denied the existence of God. Yeah, they've just um, denied their church involvement. Exactly. They're no longer interested exactly. in being involved. Which, you know, I think as people see studies like that, they start to ask that question that has been the root of this conversation. It, it, well, it's because, you know, the assumption is that um, these nuns are increasing because they are disgusted with all of the division and divisiveness within the church. And so they would rather just not have anything to do with it. And they, they remove themselves from the churches altogether. And people look at research like that and say, well, then in order to fix this, we need to make sure that all churches get along. And if we can get all churches to get along, and, and if we can get over ourselves and regain fellowship um, and, and start looking at each other as brothers and sisters, all headed to the same place in heaven, um, then if we can get there, then some of these nuns will be moved by the, um, by the, uh, um, the brotherhood, the sisterhood of that new movement and would find themselves back in church. Right. Um, and so asking that question, like, how can we get to a place where as churches, we all get along again? And how do, can we uh, get past denominationalism? Um, I, I think a lot of times is rooted in this heart for people who have wandered. Right, um, right. And, ho and the hope is that we can um, find some of those lost sheep again by getting along again. Right. Which I, I don't mind that thought process. But I think, you know, I, I'm hoping that as you've listened to our podcast over the, uh, over the last several weeks, they're hearing that some of these divisions that have happened over the years are, are um, good. Yeah, they're meaningful. Yeah. Right? So there's what the essence of that issue is that there are truths there, but there's also falsehoods. Right. Right. I mean, it's true. It would be great if on some kind of a grand scale, we could all um, as churches agree and say, look, we're... We don't agree with everything that happens in your church. We don't like the way you do things. We don't uh, agree with your preferences. But on this level, on this uh, this 30,000-foot level, we're going to say we stand in solidarity. Mm -hmm. There have been movements like that, like that, by the way. Yeah, um, there's the ecumenical movement, which we never really talked about. Exactly. That's a and, big deal. And there's a response to the ec ecumenical movement, which was the... Um, the American Council of Christian Churches, mm -hmm. the ACCC. <laughs> and I think that there's even now a, um, there's a, a wider branch of that that's international. And that was a, that was a multi-level group of people, um, very, very conservative, very, very fundamental. Um, they were Presbyterians and they were Baptists and they were Bible churches and and what they said was, we're agreed on this level, and on this level, we, this 30,000-foot level, if you will, uh, we're going to partner, mm -hmm. and we're going to focus our attention on the things that are important. When it comes down to grassroots and so on, we recognize that we're just so different, and we have just such different preferences that we're, we can't function together on a local level. Right. So... Um, if you remember back to um, the illustration used at the outset of this, um, this discussion with that bullseye idea, so the um, with the centering being those core um, beliefs, those core principles that we've now identified as the fundamentals, um, and then the second ring being that conviction ring where there are differing opinions on things that are scriptural. Um, so like in 
uh, as an illustration I use often there, um, our church baptizes believers who have you know, made a profession of faith. Um, other churches will baptize infants um, uh, as a dedication to the faith. Um, and so we have a, a, a conviction difference, um, but because of our core, um, our core um, um, cohesion, right. um, we would still call those people brothers and sisters. We just meet in different buildings on Sundays, and that's okay. Right. Um, and then uh, the outer ring is the preference ring. And in those preference rings, we can say, like, some of these things we can just continue to get along with inside uh, the same church building on a Sunday morning, and some of these preferences, you know, maybe not. Um, and we've kind of, you know, we weigh those a bit sometimes. And sometimes those divisions are good, and sometimes those divisions, you know, have proved to not be so good. Right. So um, the ecumenical movement, uh, many of you listening have heard that term, aren't necessarily familiar with it. If you're part of our church and have gone through our church, read through our constitution as in our church, there's actually like... Um, verbiage that prohibits being involved with the ecumenical movement. Um, why is that? Why, why would a church um, say, like actually have a statement saying, we're not involved with this? So the ecumenical movement uh, is a movement that begins to say, why, why can't we all just get along? And looking for some kind of cohesive level, rather than going to a cohesion of, we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, uh, we believe the Bible to be truth, and it's going to guide us in our direction. What the ecumenical movement did was, hey, you know what? We're all Protestants, and we all need to love one another. Mm-hmm. So love is a great motivator, and it's a great uniter, uh, but it leaves out so much, and it lets so much in. Sure, because we, I mean, we talked about that in our previous episode. You have, you know, because the definition of love is uh, can be fluid, then it makes the statement really wishy-washy and challenging. Absolutely. And so, um, so because of that, like you end up being partnered with people that um, you wouldn't share even the same core values with. Right. Right. And I think on top of that, right, uh, some of the ecumenical movement things that I've I've seen, like they're they're even broader than Protestantism. Yes. Um, I mean, oh, yes. you have you'll have. Um, you know, you'll have Jewish rabbis on the same platform and imams and things like that. And that would all be ecumenical. We all get along. Right. Because right. we're all, it's that coexist bumper sticker is the right. ecumenical movement. Right. Um, and so then the response to that was, you know, from a lot of evangelicalism is like, well, that like totally bypasses these fundamentals that we all agree on. So, but can we still like take the heart of that? And then that's where the A, Lots of C's comes from. There's another one, which is the National Association of Evangelicals, the NAE. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is not as strong of a program as the others. But, you know, uh, yeah, that that whole idea really is what is our core value. Right. And if in mainline Protestantism, all they have that they say is a core value is this concept of loving, loving others as Jesus loved us. Well, that's that's a great biblical principle, but it's not a core value. Hmm. That's that's actually trying to unite um, on something very fluid, something very much on the edge of the target. So, I mean, you could say, well, hey, we're at least on the target, but are you really? And uh, that's that's one of the reasons why we as a church have said we don't want anything to do with the evangelical, or excuse me, with the ecumenical movement. Right. Which is not to say that we want nothing to do with other churches, which, Absolutely. which can be a problem. Sure, sure. <laughs> Some people will read that and say, okay, then we just don't connect with any other church in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, would be, that would be a wrong interpretation of that. Yeah. So one of the things I want to get to today, uh, we've hit this time period. Oh, okay. you have uh, yeah, I one, one, yeah. one other idea, okay? And that is, so it, it, that whole idea of I stay away from the ecumenical movement, and, but you're right, it doesn't mean that we stay away from other churches. Um, the hard thing there, the hard thing there is something that came out in the 40s. Um, who do I associate with? So I might associate with another church that is just like mine um, and has the same, the same um, core values, uh, maybe a diff- couple of different preference differences, same core values. But what do I do with a church that has similar core values to mine but they have an ongoing relationship with a church that has no core values that I have in common. So it's like this, uh, you can't be associated with a church because of who they are associated with. Right. 
Wow. So and, it's like a whole extra step on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of the issue of, do I, do I have, do I have a, let, let's put it into, let's put it into perspective. Let's say um, that church contacts me and says, Hey, we're going to have an evangelical crusade. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to put up a tent like in the old days. Um, we're going to, we're going to have people come. We've got music. We've got a, an evangelist coming in. He's going to speak. It's going to be really great. And uh, we, we've invited you to participate with us. And we've also invited um, uh, the first mainline church in town because we have a relationship with them too. And at that point, if you've made the decision, well, you know, I don't really want to have anything to do with the ecumenical movement. Do you say... Uh, you know, brother, I would love to be part of your evangelical work and your evangelistic work, but because First Mainline is part of that, I, I really don't feel like we're all working in the same direction. And, you know, you can have you can have a friendship with people that are at First Mainline. Uh, you know, if you're a pastor, you can have a, you can go to drink coffee with uh, the pastor at First Mainline. The moment you just set, you say, you know, um, from Proverbs, let's let's throw in and have a common purse. Hmm. Uh, at that point, you begin to get into a really, really difficult territory. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, this this challenge arises, and you, so far, I mean, you, we've hit. Hopefully, you, as you're listening to this, you're hearing kind of how all of these things are unfolding. And today, we want to get to this point of being able to get at this question of why can't we get along? And, and today I want to talk a little bit more about the things that have divided the church that aren't necessarily good things that have divided the church. I feel like so far we've talked about all of these divisions that um, come naturally and in, in from a healthy place and a desire to follow scripture and a desire to follow the Lord. And, and it feels like to me that when we get into the last 50 years of the church movement, that there are more um, divisions over things that aren't necessarily healthy or, or, um, or biblically mandated uh, divisions. And, and that might just be because of my experience being alive more often in the last 50 years than in the previous <laughs> 250. But it, it seems like we have some of those divisions that have, have arisen in the, last, you know, in the last 50 years. And so um, with these things, I think, you know, as we, as we talk about them, we can kind of define what they are and, and talk through the history of some of these um, bad divisions. Um, and I would say that these might be things that the church has a responsibility to repent over and, and to um, um, pursue reconciliation on. Um, but, you know, so we have, we're, we're set, we've set the stage for that. Um, and so the first one of these that um, I'm aware of, it actually has a term, right? That, and that's called like the worship wars. Right. Um, right. The worship wars. It, it moves out of this, you know, now we've moved out of the conviction ring and we're in the preference ring. And we have some churches that have a certain worship style. And then you have other churches that sing other songs. And you start to divide and actually call, you know, you, you actually would, you know, divide as a church over your decision on what to sing um, every Sunday, even if you preach from the same passage with the same message later on. So I have a history view here. Okay, right? yeah, that'd be helpful. Uh, kind of like, uh, I like to say of myself that I'm a perspectivist. Um, I have this, I have this, I, I call it a blessing of actually being able to put my historical life in perspective um, and use it to understand my present. So when I was a child, uh, I, I went to a, a fundamentalist church. Uh, we sang hymns on Sunday mornings. Uh, I, I, you know, you can test me. I, I know the hymnal. I know it really, really well. Uh, I'm not just a first verse guy. I'm a, I, I can usually even, I can usually even sing the dreaded third verse. Wow, the one nobody touches. Yeah, yeah. So, so I had that experience, but I also, we also had junior church and Sunday school. And in those sessions, in those, those parts of the church, we would actually sing a lot of Bible choruses. They were, uh, uh, there was a guy named Percy Crawford at the time who was writing Bible choruses. There was, uh, there was a movement uh, sponsored by, led by a guy named Jack Wurtson in uh, New York called Word of Life. And Word of Life wrote 
Bible choruses and and the chorus method or the chorus concept was so significant that um, advertisers looked at Christian choruses and said, if we want people to remember our name and our product, we need to have the character of these this Christian music, this these Christian choruses, because their words are memorable because of the way they link with the music. Mm-hmm. So I grew up on hymns in church and choruses everywhere else. Mm. Now, fast forward that 10 years, the 1970s, my youth pastor actually, well, his wife actually played the guitar. Sure, during the yeah. uh, Jesus movement. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out to Jim and Joy Westervelt. They're still in ministry, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, they played guitar and sang. And at first, there was a great deal of uh, tension in the church because of a guitar on the platform. And that, that tension was only overcome by the fact that Jim and Joy were such good vocalists that no one really cared about the fact that she was playing the guitar. But that introduced guitar music in our church, and that was difficult because we were an organ, piano, and 45-voice choir in robes type of church. Hmm. And, and suddenly there was that tension. It was even starting in the 70s. Fast forward to... Well, I mean, even before you fast forward there, right? Like that, that's happening in your church, but it's also happening in pop culture. That's um, true. Because, you know, in the 1950s, you have, these, you have these musicians that are singing gospel songs. It's going out on the radio and out on record and out on vinyl. And these musicians have their roots in church music um, and start using some of the principles of church music and the design of church music. And then they start singing about girls instead of Jesus. And then you have guys like um, you have guys like Buddy Holly and Elvis. Elvis' and number Ray, one selling album was his hymns album. Yeah, you have Ray Charles um, coming out of the South, and you have you know in the country scene you've got um, like June Carter and the and, and all of those people, right? That's right. Who you know, and they're all singing. You know, they all have their roots in church music, led by guitar. So that when you get through the fifties and the sixties and into the seventies. Um, you begin the Jesus movement where you have these musicians whose lives have been changed by, by an interaction with the gospel who are taking their gift set and writing new music. And you got like Bob Dylan who brings in some of the best musicians in the world to make a gospel album. He tricks them into coming and playing on this gospel record, becomes a huge selling record. And all of these, all of these musicians walk away going, it's great music. I'm never going to believe in your Jesus. Um, but then you know you have a movement in pop culture that's influenced by these praise songs that come out of the fifties, sixties, and seventies. But you also have you also have a um, a geographic culture issue here too, because it's acceptable in the South for guitarists singing country music songs to sing country gospel songs to sing those. Uh, on a Sunday morning, that music changes from country gospel to um, American folk music and comes to the platforms of churches in the North, and there is resistance. Yeah, and it's fine for your um, kids' programs. It's tolerable in your teenage programs. But on a Sunday morning on the platform, we're going to stick with our piano, organ, and choir. But the problem is, all of those children and teenagers grow up. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I remember having a conversation with my secretary many years ago. She was in her 70s, and she hated the choruses that we're singing in our church. And, and I looked at her, and I said, well, you know, this is your fault. And her eyes got huge, like, what do you mean this is my fault? And I said, when I was in junior church, people your age taught me choruses, like Like I mentioned, the Percy Crawford choruses, you guys taught us that. So isn't it just natural that my generation coming into church is going to want to sing the music that you taught us to sing? Sure. Yeah. 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 And, And the hard part here in this brewing fight is that I think we're really bad at understanding our history, and we're really bad at understanding where our music comes from, especially... 
And, and so what that generation was calling hymns had been fought over previously. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. I was, uh, I read an article by Cliff Barrows one time. And for those of you newbies, Cliff Barrows was uh, the, the song leader for, uh, Bill, for Billy Graham uh, for most of the years of his ministry. So uh, for those of you who are, uh, you know, aren't acquainted with the Billy Graham crusade, uh, Cliff Barrows would lead the singing. Uh, he would also lead the choir. They would bring in uh, people could volunteer to join the choir, and there'd be like a hundred-voice choir behind Billy. And um, they would also, their, their soloist, their primary soloist, was also a guy named George Beverly Shea, who made a song from Sweden very, very popular in our culture. And, uh, and, and it was a song that was not in the hymnals prior to George Beverly Shea singing it. But, uh, you know, because George Beverly Shea would sing um, um, How Great Thou Art at the Billy Graham Crusades, hymnals had to be reprinted to put How Great Thou Art in because it was not part of our hymnody. Anyway, George um, Barrows, Cliff Barrows, writing in this article, talks about how the, uh, the churches in the 50s and the 60s would come to Billy Graham and to him and would complain because... The Billy Graham Crusade was not was not emphasizing the great hymns of the faith, and because of that, there were churches that were struggling with participating with Billy Graham, because his his music was not what they wanted. It wasn't it wasn't the hymnody that they were expecting. Right, which creates division in the church because this is a the billy graham crusade movement is massive it comes on we've talked about this already it comes on the tales of, of great uh, crusades before from moody and billy sunday but but billy graham like this is like next level life change and we talked about that previously i mean exactly. the man is leading services for the queen of england right, right. um and now, the whole you know and some of these great musicians we talked about whose lives are changed in the 70s are on the platform with him when he does these crusades johnny cash goes up and sings with 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 uh with uh chris christopherson yes, yes. yeah and yes. they're up there they'll sing together and then johnny cash heads off to prison but they're there yeah um and uh, they're, again, love Jesus working through this old man, new man stuff. But yeah. that music is changing rapidly. But the local church has, is now in conflict. Can we support the Billy Graham crusade, which has so many people coming to Christ? And I mean, the Billy Graham crusade has its issues. Let's sure. be really yeah, honest yeah, sure. here, right? That whole, that whole um, who, do I, who am I having on my leadership team? We talked about that a little bit, the whole evangelicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. out of the um, 40s, yeah. It, do I, and, and Billy, Billy would go after mainline churches. He, he would invite the local Episcopalian pastor to bring out his church, and, and he would invite the local, the local uh, mainline Presbyterian church to bring out, the, and he would invite the local Roman Catholic priest to bring out his church. Uh, and part of that was... Um, Billy Graham was focused on saving souls. Right. So why... Why would I refuse some souls from coming? Uh, yeah, yeah. And there, it's just a problem because, of course, then you're going to have, then you're gonna have that, that spiritually dead Episcopalian pastor or Episcopalian bishop leading in prayer on a, at, a, at, a, at, a, uh, at one of the crusades. And that just makes the evangelicals scratch their head and say... And I don't know if I want to be associated with somebody who, in his writings, has said, I don't believe God exists, and yet here he is at a Billy Graham crusade le yeah. leading. And so if I go and bring my church to this, my, all my congregants are going to say, where, who, what, what you know, uh, they're going to want, they're going to want, there's going to be trust issues <laughs> with, with what we've been teaching. Here's that question, right? What's the difference between us and the local mainline church? Yeah. Because we saw them at the Billy Graham crusade, and they seemed to be doing okay. They were there. They they were praying. They were singing. They were they were in the hallways of the arena praying as people you know with people as they accepted Jesus. Why are we all that different? Why can't we get along? Right. And as a pastor, right. you're saying, "Oh, let me count the ways that we are different." Right. But it's such an awkward conversation to have with your parishioner, sure, <laughs> um, sure. or your congregant, depending on where you're from. Yeah. And. Uh, 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a real challenge that yeah. the church has here because some of these things, some of, some of these natural divisions that we've talked about so far, now with the Billy Graham crusade are becoming really challenging. And then on top of that, you're having this music movement that is changing pop culture uh, and church culture, and churches are having to deal with all of this. And, and you realize that the music issue isn't just evangelicals. Right. Right? It's, it's mainline churches, too, that are struggling with uh, a lot of the uh, the chorus music, a lot of the evangelical, the, a lot of the even the even the Fanny Crosby and P.P. Bliss stuff that's being introduced. Because here's the thing: those songs are testimonies, uh, and I, I would say you know a lot of what we love as hymns aren't necessarily truly hymns. They're just in the hymn book. They're, they're testimony songs. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and there's a difference between a testimony song and a hymn. And I think that we see that in a lot of Christian choruses. Uh, um, a testimony song tells a person about um, the singer's experience with Christ, and that's a great thing. A hymn teaches a biblical concept. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's, there's that issue, and peop- the evangelicals and even the mainliners are saying, hey, wait a second— there's not a lot of Christian principle being taught in this in this music that you're calling a hymn. Yeah. Right? And and that just creates dissonance, music word. Yeah, I like that. Good know? job. Um and and it's not just a problem there. Can I can I just really quick identify uh that there are even uh personal and denominational issues that arise with the whole music wars thing. For example, if you're a Presbyterian um, if you're an old line Presbyterian, if you, you remember what being a Presbyterian was like in the 60s and the 70s, uh, Presbyterian churches do not, um, they do not focus their worship on music. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have as many hymns included in their worship, and the music that they do include all has to link back to the book of Psalms in some way. Right. Uh, they sing the Psalter, and the Presbyterian hymn book is called a Psalter. So uh, it, it's fun to look at one of those. Uh, they don't put titles in the Psalter on any of the hymns. You might look at that and say, this looks like an old hymn of the faith. But, oh, you know, like, oh, this looks like Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. Isn't that great? It doesn't have the title on the top of the song. It'll have a number, mm-hmm. and it'll have a psalm that that music can be connected to mm-hmm. but it won't have the it won't have the title of it and you have to look all the way down to the bottom of the page in the hymnal to find out who wrote it and who wrote the music for it mm-hmm. because for the presbyterians music isn't important right right it's the it's it's the word that is important absolutely yeah so, and you have some Presbyterian churches even that won't use instrumentation. None. Um, all the singing is a cappella, um, and uh, and they'll, they, you know, and yeah. So you're only singing songs. You're singing them without instruments. Right. So now you're in real that that real includes challenge. the church. By the way, there's another group called the Church of God uh, out of Cleveland, Tennessee, and they also do not use any instruments in their in their worship services. Right. Because yeah. so imagine, if you will. Um, you are a um, you you are a, a somebody who's been converted from um, a, a deep mainline Presbyterian background, and you now are starting at a Bible church, Baptist church, uh, gospel church, where a uh, uh, Assembly of God church, mm-hmm. where uh, music is thirty is forty to fifty percent of the service. Where um, your your musicality is is very much celebratory. It's it's lifting up music. You're you're talking about maybe the writer of the music. You're playing it with multiple instruments. If you come from that background, where music is not the priority, you are very uncomfortable in that kind of an experience. Yeah, and and I think the discomfort you start to you. Whenever we're, disc- we're never we're uncomfortable, we start to think about like what would make us comfortable, <laughs> and then we assign value to what makes us comfortable. Um, and 
and rather than just thinking about it objectively. It's really hard to be objective. And so then you start to say, well, then my experience says that the, the uh, dissection of the word is the most important piece of what we do as a church and in our service. And so since this other experience now puts so much emphasis on its music, then um, they are devaluing the, 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 the um, proclamation of the word and rising up the value of music, which is man's word and not God's word. And now you can associate, now you can add like spiritual value to your discomfort and, and start to start to like, you know, wag your finger at the other group saying you are wrong and you don't value God because this is different. Absolutely. So here's another aspect of this, right? Then you add in um, what many call the, the charismatic sizing of Christian music. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are a lot of people, for example, that I know of who are older than me, thankfully, um, who have a hard time with choruses that repeat the same line over and over and over again, which I, I, was, in a, I was in a restaurant this weekend, and I heard an old 60s tune, and uh, I, I turned to my wife and I said, do you realize that entire song that lasted two and a half minutes had one, one line that was repeated over and over and over again? It just, it just becomes monotonizing. And, and there it was a Christian style of music very similar to that, where you would repeat a line over and over and over again. And to some extent, the purpose of that was to create um, an emotional relationship with the moment. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people who struggled with that. A lot of people in evangelical circles who struggled with, why am I repeating this one line over and over again? There's no content here. Right. Right. There's right. no value. Right. They, they would often quote from the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is, this is vain babbling. Yeah. 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 Or is it the seven, seven songs, right? Seven words repeated seven times. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah. And it would be like this disparaging comment, right? Because, you know, CCM, contemporary Christian music is, is now a thing. Yes, and it's the, a money maker, a huge money maker, and the CC, a lot of the CCM musicians are coming out of a charismatic background. Exactly, and a charismatic background has always valued the emotional response to to the Holy Spirit, um, which is a good thing to value the emotional response yeah. to the Holy Spirit. That maybe some of us um, more conservative evangelicals lack in our in our faith experience, um, but they they because they're more comfortable trading in that space. They have written music out of that and they're better. They're more um, prepared to write music. Uh, it's already a piece of their church culture. And so when um, the Christian music scene takes off and there is a hunger for more, then you go to these musicians who have already been doing this, which are largely coming out of a charismatic world. And so now you're copying and pasting songs written by charismatics and sung in old Baptist churches and, uh, man, people are starting to struggle a lot here. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think there's been a change in, um, contemporary Christian music in, in probably the last 10 years, I would say. Uh, it's, it was foreshadowed. It, it's probably was foreshadowed 20 years ago, but I think one of the, one of the things that I have seen happening in contemporary Christian music that we use in our churches and, Put this into perspective, too. I, I, I don't want to disparage Christian radio, um, especially uh, musical Christian radio. There's, you know, there's one of those, a, a satellite station, and um, there's several others. Uh, they tend to, th those Christian radio stations tend to do two things. One is they, they target the middle of the road mm -hmm. because that's where, uh, that's where they're going to get the most listeners um, and then the second thing is that they uh, are very broad in what they call Christian music. And a lot of what is on the radio has no place in church. Right. Because um, one of the things I despise as a pastor Ooh, this will be fun. is uh, Christian music that is totally pronoun-driven. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, it's 
it talks about he, right, not Jesus. Who, talks about he. Who is he? Who is he? And, and when you listen to the song, it sounds like, well, this is a great love song. Is it a great hymn? Is it a great Christian inspiration? Is it, does it, does it have testimony to it? And, and I don't necessarily see that. I see it as this guy would love to break into country music or would love to break, break, break into pop music. And he's written a love song and he can get it played on Christian stations, but he can't necessarily get it, he can't get necessarily a spin on a pop channel. Mm-hmm. So I, I really despise those. Those have very little place uh, in church. Right, which I would say, like, there are, because the Christian music world has refined quite a bit, in the, and I'm curious, actually, I circle back to this. When you say 10 years ago, what year are you referring to? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm actually going back... Um, like year 2000, actually 20 years ago? Yeah, I would go back to the year 2000. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I saw a change yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah, um, I agree on that. So um, I would say, like, as the Christian music scene has refined, um, I actually think it's a healthy thing to have music that doesn't have any place in the church that's still Christian. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, uh, and that's a great thing, right? Like, right. you don't have to, like, pull every single song off of K-Love and then move it to your Sunday morning service. Please. Um, actually, I would really struggle with that. I oh. have a... I'm challenged to listen to Caleb. So just as a pastor, we're being honest with our friends yeah, we here, are. right? Yeah. Like I, I struggle with Caleb because of all the middle of the road stuff. And it just, it bothers me musically. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful for it and I'm glad that it exists. And I'm glad the songs that are written and played there exist um, because there's definitely a space for that in, right. in our, in our world. But butterfly but kisses does not belong. <laughs> no, um, but all of those things like, you know, they, somebody just got really offended. Um, so uh, all of those, um, I'm glad that all of those exist. They don't necessarily need to exist in the church. Um, but that comes out of refinement in the, in the media, right. Um, right. in that form of media, which is right. great. Um, but the started, when this started, all of these songs, you know, it's, you're either singing a hymn or you're singing a praise chorus. And um, on the same Sunday morning, you're, you know, as a church, like, like as a leader in a church, like I might have a heart to reach my community. And, and if you read, you know, there's some great books that happen, you know, in the 90s um, about church growth. And, or, and there are some great churches that come out of the 80s and 90s that explode in popularity um, and in size. You know, you have Southern California, you've got Saddleback up in Chicago, you have um, Willow Creek down in Atlanta, you, you have North Point, and you, you have some of these churches that just explode in yeah. size that are led by men who love Jesus and come from a, a um, an evangelical background. And some of you are listening, you're like, yeah, but I really dislike this guy. It's fine. Like they, their heart was good and their heart is good. Um, and, um, and we would call them brothers for sure. And, um, but they, uh, um, they start playing more music that would be found on the radio stations of their communities and they're writing songs that sound like the music that their target audience would listen to. So Rick Warren tells a story. And in doing story, that, the right. churches explode because people like are connecting better with that music. Right. So Rick Warren tells a story. He's uh, Saddleback's getting started. He has maybe 250 people meeting in his tent. And one Sunday, he just hands out a piece of paper to everybody in the tent and says, write down the call letters of the radio station that you listen to in the car and they collected them and what they found was that the vast majority of the people that attended that church uh, listened to the local uh, pop rock station mm-hmm. of course they did it's it was that's why it's pop yeah, yeah exactly so he went out and found a musician he said his first his first full-time hire was a worship pastor a guy named rick Munchell, who came in and he said he said rick Here's the music that we need. It needs to be pop rocky because this is who our congregation is. And and that's that's how they expanded their music. Their music addressed the culture that they were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. It starts from a missionary heart. Um, and which again, like I think the same thing you see the same thing in the Billy Graham movement. You you have this missionary heart that writes new music. Um, but then the 
the people who have already been in the club for a long time, they, they're missing out on the music that they've, that they've adored and sung that has been meaningful to them. And this conflict, it, it, it continues to evolve. And so you have these churches and the, the, the criticism of these churches that are growing rapidly. I mean, what, Saddleback has a like 100,000, 200,000 people associated with it. It's, it's a yeah, large, yeah. Huge churches, right? Um, like you, as these churches expand, like you start to like, the old faithful start going, yeah, they're like a mile wide, but they're only an inch deep because, and we start like referring to some of these music choices as the reasons for why they are like that. Um, and it's not because it's a church that's just massively full of brand new believers who need mature ones to be there to build into them. Right, right. Uh, and so you start to say, like, there is this, like, club mentality that evolves. Like, because these new people aren't the same as, like, they're not coming to Jesus the same direction I came to Jesus. And so right. that, since they're not coming to Jesus in the same direction that I came to Jesus, um, I've got a problem with them. And we land back in Galatians. Exactly. Yeah. As a church. Yeah. Because now we've set up a rule regarding yeah. what your music is supposed to look like. Did you ever see the old uh, movie, The African Queen? Yeah. Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a scene there with leeches. It's absolutely disgusting and kind of scary how they could do that in the 1950s. But anyway... Um, the start of that, and remember, I, I, I'm referring to something that's Hollywood, so it, it's definitely anti, anything coming out of Hollywood is anti-Christian. Just keep that in mind. Every once in a while, a blind squirrel finds an acorn, and they hit on this. So uh, one of the things that, if you've never seen the story, uh, read the book by C.S. Forrester, uh, the storyline is of this uh, this woman who's the sister of a missionary, they're missionaries in, in Africa as World War I is, is, is beginning. And um, in the opening scene, uh, Catherine Hepburn, the missionary's uh, sister, is playing the organ in a church uh, with, the, with the brother leading the singing of a, a large African congregation who is kind of, medi they're not really singing, they're, but they're singing. They're just kind of mouthing the words. Well, the the war the war hits, uh, the brother gets killed, and the entire congregation goes running into the bush, back to the back to all that they were ever were. They they almost leave Christianity. There's and they go back, and the the way they make that clear is that they start singing their old music. Hmm. And I don't want to make. I don't want to make this issue uh, like a, a Sketch Erickson thing from the 70s where, or 80s where we say that, you know, music is of the devil or something like that. Burn your albums. Music is all, all music is good if it's used to please God. Mm. So all music can be good if it's used to please God. And one of the things that I see in that scene is that they failed in ministering to those locals to exegete their music and write music that they would understand and that they would sing in their voice that reflected their character and their culture and their love for Jesus. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so you fast forward from there into the actual practice of this in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you have, you have ministries that are starting to figure out that this is an important element of doing, um, of, of, of doing gospel work in their community. And, uh, but it's challenging the old guard. And um, in that challenge, you start to create these divisions. And so you might have a church that meets on one side of town that could, like the, the uh, message that that pastor preaches um, could be copied and pasted exactly into the church on the other side of town. Absolutely. Um, and, and both groups would be moved by it, but because they sing different songs on a Sunday, they are divided. Right. And, right. and this division, now we're getting into this like unhealthy division that we're seeing, evolve, that we're repeating this pattern of unhealthy division that we see in Scripture, particularly in Galatians, of yep. you're not coming to Jesus through um, Judaism, 
because you're not coming to Jesus through Judaism, you're not a real Christian. So you've got to go get circumcised and then you can be part of the club. We, we make that, you're not coming to Jesus through the old hymns. You're not singing the, the music that we've grown up with. You're singing this rock music. You have drums in here. Like you, it's loud. It's repetitive. Um, and because you're singing all those things and you're not singing these hymns of the faith, um, you're not part of the club. And you need to come and fix your music or else I'm out. And what's crazy is like Peter and Paul, there's... Uh, this, Both the, of us are getting together for lunch on a regular basis. Both of us pastors are getting, and we're praying for our congregations that they'll grow and expand. Yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. But the congregation has taken that preference division as a biblical division. Right, and when you take that preference ring and you move that into the center of conviction and even you know further, you move that into core value, and now you've created something called legalism, um, where everything that a church decides, decide, you know, every every opinion of, of the congregation is a you're an in or an out person. Well, today's conversation about these divisions got a little bit long, and we thought maybe we should break this episode up into two. So you've just finished listening to part one of the conversation uh, around. Uh, those divisions that are unhealthy. We have more to come next week. So stay with us. Uh, tune in next Monday and you can hear part two of this conversation uh, on unhealthy divisions. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.